Please be turning back to page 883 for the beginning of a little series on the book of Daniel. When Andrew was reading the bands, it always came home to me. I, I've read bands of marriage on and off for over 50 years and secretly longed for somebody to object. But nobody ever... Because I knew exactly what to do and I never had to do it. Sad. In a few weeks' time, we shall start uh, all, one more year of agony of football matches. We shall all be going through the agony yet again. And we shall hear all those clichés being trotted out. You know, the famous one about a game of two halves... I look forward to a game of three halves one day. It'll be very interesting. Uh, and the book of Daniel is very much a book of two halves. The second half of Daniel is still very much a mystery to me. I, I try to work out these visions, and one day I shall be mature enough to preach with confidence in the second half of Daniel. If you're confident in the second half of Daniel, you probably haven't got the message. But I shall try to get there eventually. But the second half of Daniel does give us the clue that this book is in fact the reflections of Daniel himself. We come in the second half several times, I, Daniel. So it's a reflection of a man who went through living in a foreign land. What is intriguing, of course, is if you, when you do take in the second half of the book of Daniel, you find a, a remarkable chapter, which I do understand, chapter 9, of marvellous prayer. And in the prayer, Daniel talks about people going in exile from Judah, and he says... Constantly, we. But wait a minute, Daniel, that wasn't your fault. You see, we know the, the dates of Daniel, if you like these dates. We know that he went into exile in the year 605. And we know from the end of chapter 1 of Daniel that he remained there till the first year of King Cyrus, which we know was 539. So he was in Babylon, you're good at maths, 66 years so, whatever age he, he lived till, he clearly wasn't there much before, and he wasn't there much after. So, what happened in, in, in the, the exile wasn't really Daniel's fault. And yet, he was so much part of the people of God, in spite of the fact that he became a great man of God and stood his ground for God, he still always had, as we do week by week, to say his confession, we. It is a, a staggering thought that this, this Daniel went into, the, into exile and he becomes a kind of symbol of how the people of God have to live in a foreign land. That's why we had the verse, first nine verses of 1 Peter read because that's sent to these strangers scattered throughout all those areas. And uh, that's what we are. We are always strangers and pilgrims. Do you know, one of the words for strangers in the New Testament is the word from which we get the English word parish. Interesting, isn't it? Where does the word parish and strangers fit? And the whole idea is that always, right down history, the people of God in the church of God are different. The word for church means ecclesia, called out, set apart, different. And the parish church, if you like, stands as a symbol in our world, in our increasingly secular world, that there's another world. And we belong to that world. And because we live in that world, we are subject to the normal ups and downs of life, as well as those that come because we're Christians. Strange, last week at the Keswick Convention, we were sitting uh, watching the floods, inevitably, in the south, uh, from Keswick, it was very much the south. Normally you think of Keswick and the lake as being wet. 
well, there was some rain, but very little comparatively, and watching the floods. And when you ponder the people suffering in the floods, do you think God ought to have uh, allowed Christians not to have their house flooded? Would it have been nice if good Christian people, because they were good Christian people, should miss out on it? Years ago, in the middle of the foot and mouth disease, I was preaching in a convention in North Lancashire, and a, a man came to see me at the end of my talk. He was clearly not used to talking to speakers. There are some people who love buttonholing preachers, and you, you spot them. But he was not one of those, obviously. He was, uh, it was, he was very reluctant to come. And he said this to me. He said, you, you know, I've just lost all my flock and herd through foot and mouth. Everything's gone. And I have a lot of friends who are equally in the same boat. Uh, and they're in real trouble. One of them's committed suicide and several have been suicidal. And I've been able to say to them, look, I'm in the same boat as you are. And I've lost everything like you have. But I've got a saviour. I've got a purpose. I've got a hope. And then smiling, he turned his back on me and he said, you see, it took foot and mouth to open my mouth. And as he went off, I thought, how lovely that one. There's this rather timid farmer who for the first time opened his mouth to tell of his faith because he lost his, all his flock. Now, I pondered that. Supposing God, in his infinite mercy, and he could have done it, sovereignty, said, right, there's a good Christian farmer, his flock will be all right. And there'd be a great witness in the newspaper, Christian farmer doesn't lose his sheep. Would that have made it easier or harder for him to witness? Harder. Because you see, if friends to me wanted a witness could say to him, it's all right for you. You haven't gone through what we've gone through, but he had, and therefore he could witness. So Christians are going to go through all the normal vicissitudes of life. We live in a fallen world like everybody else, and all the effects of it. But because we're Christians, there will be another element of suffering. And in our world increasing, as I read and pray for the Barnabas Fund and so on, and I look at what they're doing, the number of people who are suffering because of their faith in our world today is very large, and it's becoming more and more to us. So that when we look at Daniel in these next few weeks, I hope you'll see it's not just a story of what happened to Jews from Judah in Babylon in the 6th century before Christ. It's what happens to the people of God, wherever they are, in the world of sin and increasing challenge and opposition. So we learn. We learn three lessons of this passage, if I suggest to you. We learn, first of all, that we are to be God's people in a hostile world. Verses 1 to 7. God's people in a hostile world. That is, Daniel and his friends were strangers. Uh, they were caught up in the disaster that happened because of their sins of their forefathers and if you notice in verse 2 it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand the sovereign Lord was in charge if you were to read 2 Chronicles 36 where it's a summary of all that had gone wrong before Jehoiakim went into exile you'll see it's because of their disobedience prophets came and went and they didn't listen God showed his ways but they turned their back and it wasn't Babylon, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who brought them. It was the Lord who did it. Now friends, we'll come back to this in a, from a different angle in a moment. If, I'm, if a person is an atheist, an unbeliever, and they look at the problems of the world, all they can say, they have no problems, they've got no answers. 
No problems because it's just hard luck. These things happen. But if we're godly people, and if we believe the word of God, we've got problems sometimes. Why do some people suffer so much? Why does this seem to happen? But at least we've got an answer. We've got a God to turn to. The one thing we can never do is to assume that somehow God's going out of business. Daniel and his friends were in Babylon. They didn't want to be there. They wanted to be home. But they acknowledged the fact that God was in charge. And so they would be. Even as strangers, they had a role to fulfill here in Babylon. They were strangers. And they became also at the same time citizens. Now please note this, they were strangers, but they became citizens. You notice about them in verse 4. When you read verse 4, don't you think what extraordinary people they were? Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand. Isn't that the kind of man you'd like to marry your daughter? Was there anything wrong with them at all? I mean, perfect people. Absolutely perfect. I'm sure there were warts and all. But they were great people. These were young men of great ability. They had a high position back in Judah, but they were now in Babylon. And when they got into Babylon, they had to become citizens. And the first test they had was intriguing to me. The first test they had was they were given new names. Now please, please note, they didn't apparently battle to keep their old names. They were prepared to accept the fact that now in Babylon they had Babylonian names. And so Daniel becomes Belteshazzar and the other three gentlemen become Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Isn't it funny? We remember Daniel by his original name and we remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego by their new name. Intriguing, but they didn't battle about it. At Keswick I had to do a seminar on Friday morning uh, on grace in the third age. What had happened, there was a, a series of seminars and the leaders of those hadn't yet reached third age so they couldn't do the fourth day. They had to bring in an old boy who'd actually got there. I never know when the third age begins. I know mostly how it ends, thankfully. But where it begins, I don't know. But I spoke about it. And one of the things I tried to get across was one of the temptations of the third age is to assume that things in the past were always better than they are Today, and we talked a little bit about that. And in the Church of Jesus Christ, it's very easy, even the Keswick Convention, to think that things used to be better when I was in charge than they are today. You know, the kind of thing that goes through everybody's mind. And I was reminded, you see, that th these are the battles we face in the church. Here's an illustration. That's why it's got to do with this. When uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, got their new names, what were their original names? Incidentally, Linda did very well with all these names. I do apologise. We gave you all the names. Good for you to test you out on your ability to read long names. Hananiah, Azarias, and Mysale became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a time some years ago when in this church we were deciding whether or not to leave the Book of Common Prayer and move to what then was the avant-garde alternative services book, which is now itself now defunct. And the great debate went on. And I can remember uh, one of the elder gentlemen who's long since gone to glory uh, saying to me, well you know Philip, when we were young we had to learn the prayer book. Can't understand why this lot can't the, learn the prayer book like we did. So I thought I'd better sort of just test him out. So I said, well, you know how we sing uh, every now and again in morning prayer the benedicity? 
there aren't very many who remember the Benedicti. All you works of the Lord, bless you the Lord, praise him and magnify him forever. It went on a bit, but it kept on bringing in all of creation to praise and magnify. And how does it end? Oh, Ananias, Azarias, and my soul, bless you the Lord, praise him and magnify him forever. So I said to this gentleman, tell me, you've sung it several times, hundreds of times, who was Ananias, Azarias, and my soul, whom you bid to praise the Lord? I could see he didn't remember, so he sort of shrugged his shoulder. Well, angels. I said, wrong. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because the Benedicti comes from an apocryphal book connected to Daniel. And this gentleman had to realize that even he hadn't fully understood the prayer book. Uh, point taken. And the, the challenge is that there are certain battles we don't have to fight. It's a matter of great grace to know when to fight and when not to fight. Friends, some, particularly older Christians, fight battles long since irrelevant. And I suggest to you that we save our weapons for the real battles. For what is interesting, if you fight battles that don't matter, when you have to fight a battle that does matter, nobody takes any notice. It's like the people are always pretending they're ill when they really are ill. Nobody takes any notice. So let's be careful. They didn't battle about their names. They accepted their names because they were now citizens. They belonged to Babylon. When Margaret and I retired, or I retired, uh, more than one person gave us as a verse to encourage us, and we're grateful they did, Jeremiah 29, 11, do you know it? Jeremiah's a lot to do with Daniel. Daniel will quote Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future. And in retirement, we didn't feel that was true then, but it was true, wonderfully true. But of course, the promise in Jeremiah 29 wasn't to a retiring vicar. It was to a nation going into exile. And God still had plans for that nation. And before he gets to that promise of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, you get Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Settle down, marry, give your sons and daughters to marriage and so on. Settle there. Belong there. Okay, I'll bring you out, but for the time being, you're meant to be there. Now, that's a challenge to us. That we are meant to be citizens, even though we're strangers. God's people in a hostile world. You see, it would be very easy, wouldn't it? If we just adopted the ways of our world, we didn't fight any battles, we just went with the flow. No problems, no fights, just death, just death. But equally, it might seem wonderful if we could just get away from our world and all live in a lovely Christian community. Kind of monastic establishment. Well, I'm not sure I'd survive in all that, but that's, you know, it seems fine. But we're not in either of those. We are to live as strangers and yet as citizens. God's people in a hostile world. And friends, it, there's no doubt at all it's going to get tougher. Every day your newspaper tells you of some situation in our own country where Christians are being victimized and it will happen more and more and more. The battle is on. Now secondly, we're God's servants in the heat of testing. 
One of the problems, if you go to the Keswick Convention, which I commend warmly to you always, it's nearly over this year, but try it next year. And in the Keswick Convention, every other person you meet seems to be either a present member of Fullwood Church or an ex-member of Fullwood Church. So going around, you sort of can't get away from Fullwood. And walking by the lake, I bumped into a couple, Ian and Linda Lewis, who were married in this church, who were students who met in this church, and uh, he's now vicar of St. Bartholomew's in Bath. And I was reminded that he chaired a meeting in Bath when a few years ago I had to speak to fellow clergy on beating burnout. I assumed they asked me to do it because I'd reached what age I had without... I'm still still at it, so I must have beaten burnout somewhere down the way without knowing it. And uh, I did remind those clergymen that it was just 450 years a girl that Latimer and Ridley were facing burn up, not burn out, literally facing being burnt. We mustn't take ourselves too seriously. But the very real sense in which Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel were going to face what? Daniel, the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. You know that. And if not, well, you'll find out in this series. And because that big test was going to come, suddenly came the test that enabled them to face the bigger test. And you find this in verses 8 to 16, how they were, what they did in the heat of testing. Suddenly, they had to make a stand. And there are three adjectives that sum it up. One, courageous. Notice Daniel resolved in verse 8 that he was not going to eat the food offered to him. He was not going to drink the wine. He was going to keep to the food which, as a good Jew, he knew was right for him. Now, before we get any further, don't, this has got nothing to do with what food we eat. The Bible has made it abundantly clear. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out that makes him unclean. And he's made all foods, foods clean. The Old Testament laws of food and diet are not meaningful for us. Nonetheless, for Daniel, it seemed the right place to make a stand. I didn't go into forces. I, could have, I should have been in the, in, the, in the forces, but I am grade four. I'll explain to you one day if you ask me why I'm grade four. You look at a poor specimen of humanity in front of you. I was not needed in the forces. The Queen could manage without me. But a friend of mine who did go into the forces said the moment he never forget was that first night in the barrack room when the battle went on. Will I or will I not kneel and say my prayers? And he did eventually. And he said he, he knew once he'd won that battle, things weren't easy, but he'd won the real battle. He stood for what he believed. Yeah, I, on the last time I preached, I think I pointed out to you that when I, uh, I was at Oxford studying history and I, I'd had two terms where I'd really compromised. I hadn't, I'd tried to keep my two worlds apart and I had that experience in the Maundy Thursday service back home and I made a vow that I'd never be ashamed and the next term was the cricket term. And I wasn't much good at football, but I was quite good at cricket. And I knew I was going to play for the college team at cricket. And for me, the stand then was a matter of alcohol. is isn't time to debate all the business of alcohol, but at that stage, that was the battle. I knew if I was going to make a stand in my world, I was, I was going to tell my cricket team that I didn't. I didn't take alcohol. And so they came, it became quite a routine. Ten beers and one lemonade for hacking. This was a sort of normal routine after a cricket match. Well... It was important for me. That was the sort of stand I knew I had to make. 
I think it, it is alongside this Daniel one. Yes, you can argue that alcohol is not condemned in the Bible, though I could equally point out to the dangers of its misuse and the, the unwillingness of Christians to stand up and be counted uh, when we should be. But that's a, an issue, another issue. For me, that was the issue. And I thank God for the courage he gave me. Two of the team became Christians, not because I didn't drink alcohol, uh, but, but it, at least they knew what I was. I nailed my colours to the mast. I'd stood up. I'd shown some courage. It's a quality so much missing. The number of times I've met people, particularly in high positions of the Church of England, who, who will tell me privately what they believe, but don't expect me to say it publicly. I cannot for the life of me think why a person who believes a truth privately can't stand up and say it publicly. Too many people spend their days with a head beneath the parapet. And that's a big subject. So Daniel at that moment and his friends had the courage to stand. They resolve, that's the word in verse 8. Courageous. The old hymn says, do, do anybody remember it? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. That was before Youth Praise One. That was a long time ago. But alongside the courage of Daniel, my second adjective is gracious. You see how he did it? I think it's lovely in verse 8. He didn't make a big fuss. He asked the chief official for permission. I like that. And he always was very concerned about this chief steward whom he got on well with. He didn't want him to be, lose his job. Uh, after all, verse 10, the king would have my head because of you. It was not exactly a, a very pleasant prospect. And so he was gracious alongside his courage. Can I ask the courageous people in this congregation to ask also for grace to be gracious? It is possible to disagree without being disagreeable. And sometimes we find that hard. I would also ask those perhaps who uh, are very eager to find other people being disagreeable. You see, the compromised people never have problems and they very quickly point a finger at those of us who do stick ahead above the parapet that we are being divisive and objectionable. What we, what we who are, I hope, courageous, we need to pray that God will help us to do it with grace and mercy and never forget that at best we are merely forgiven sinners. But we still got to stand. And Daniel was courageous, he was gracious. And thirdly, as a result of it, he was prosperous. Now, I, I, I'm so glad you shouldn't really expound Daniel 1 to suggest that vegetarianism makes you healthier than meat eating. I've wrestled with that one and I've come happily to the conclusion it doesn't mean that. I'm delighted because I do not want to become a vegetarian. If you are a vegetarian, bless you and may God continue to make you feel, look healthier and better than the rest of us. But I don't think that's what it's all about. It is saying that in the mercy of God, God said, right, these men have made their stand and you see what they were? Uh, they were healthier and better nourished than any of the young men, verse 15. And they in a very real sense prospered and they got, went on to prosper. I'm always learning, and at the Keswick Convention, I learned something new. Uh, uh, I don't know any Hebrew. I used to say in my days when I was vicar uh, that I wasn't very good at Hebrew. That was, that was an understatement. I don't know any Hebrew, really. Uh, but a, a man was expounding at Keswick who did know Hebrew, and he's a lecturer at a theological college, so he should know what he's saying. And he's expounding Psalm 1. 
And Psalm 1, which is all about the man who's like the tree planted by the water, who prospers. Here's what it says about him. Psalm 1, verse 4, verse 3, sorry. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And my version says, whatever he does prospers. No, said the Hebrew scholar, and I believe he was right. It really says, whatever he does, he prospers. And I would suggest to you that's a world of difference. See, it's not suggesting if you're a godly man, then you'll always succeed in life. You're a businessman, you'll always prosper. You won't have foot and mouth ever touch you. You will always be healthy and wealthy. No. But he is saying, if you are there, whatever you do, you yourself as a human being will be the kind of human being God meant you to be. That the real health lies along the way of standing in God's ways. Now, I think it's desperately important because we're going to come on to my last point in a moment, which is that we've got a unique opportunity for witness. You see, what we can say, in all honesty, is the way God sets out in Scripture, the way we should live morally in every sense of that word, sexually, and what we do with our possessions, and what we do with our planet, all the things God has asked us to do in Scripture, make for greater health and true prosperity. That is, we're not running away from the world. We've actually got an answer to the world. And when people ask the question, they do, whatever's happening to our world, we have something to say. And the sad thing is, all too often, Christians just sort of shake their heads, what an awful world it is like everybody else, without any suggestion of what's happening. God's servants in the heat of testing, they knew when to make a stand. And they made the stand, and God blessed them. And until Christians are prepared to be different, with courage, and with grace, we shall miss my third thing. God's representatives in the hour of opportunity. God's people in a hostile world, God's servants in the heat of testing, God's representatives in the hour of opportunity, the last, verse 17 to the end. There was vision, and there was position. In the book of Daniel, we'll see as we go through this little series, and it goes on to the second half, what are the ways in which Daniel and his friends were able, particularly Daniel, to influence the world in which he lived in Babylon, pagan Babylon, was because God gave him the ability to interpret dreams, gave him vision. That didn't come from any natural gifts. It certainly didn't come from the teaching of the Babylonians, because he was so much better, verse 20, than all their enchanters and magicians. And as with the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, because he was able to answer questions of visions, well, many of these chapters in Daniel, that's where he comes into his own. Where there is no vision, the people perish, says Scripture. Now, keep a balance. Jeremiah, in his prophecy, which again was all linked with this period, complained in Jeremiah 23, 25 to 29, about people who said, I've had a dream, I've had a dream. And he said, let, if you've got a dream, tell the dream. But let him who has the word of God preach the word of God faithfully. What a straw got to do with grain. Beware of the sort of empty dreams and visions. On the other hand, where people have the vision that Scripture brings, the truth that Scripture brings, visionary in that sense of the word, 
we should have a lot to offer. And Daniel was given a position because of his vision. And it's one of my prayers, and I pray sometimes without much hope, that God in our land will raise up people in the church and in the world, the secular world, who actually do know what God is saying and have the courage to say it. How wonderful it would be if there was leadership in our land like the leadership of Daniel. Vision. And finally, position. That's part of the story of Daniel. He gets into the place where he is able to influence Babylon, though he did not belong. What about William Wilberforce? We've been celebrating Wilberforce and think of the tremendous influence he's had on the history of the whole world, the whole planet. A man of God who was what he was, not because he had some great social conscience, but because he was converted. He was regenerate. He knew the grace of God and he applied it to everyday life and he was able to have a position of influence. And we pray for that. Well, Daniel got there, we shall see, as the series unfolds, that it was tough. Who would want a position like that? Responsibility is not easy. We need people who are prepared to take responsibility in our world for God. Well, there's much I could say, but we've got to the end. Let me just say about this uh, Daniel and his position, that he was willing to be different. And later on there would come a tremendous test, because he stood true to his God, that he wouldn't refuse to... He wouldn't refuse to pray because everybody was, was meant to pray to the emperor and he, was, he would stand firm. And because of his godliness, he looked like he was going to be finished. But uh, he remained true. He dared to be different. In a minute, uh, we're going to have our closing hymn. Don't look for it yet. It's coming. It's coming. Normally, I'm, well, I'm allowed to choose. When I preach, I'm allowed to choose the closing hymn. And I actually wanted to choose Stand Up for Jesus, but I thought it wasn't the kosher hymn nowadays. So I wasn't about to choose it and discovered that George had chosen it. There you are, great minds think alike or something. Because Stand Up for Jesus is what we should be doing. And there comes the line, from victory unto victory. If I win the victory on the little things like the food laws, then I shall be able to win the victory when it really comes to the crunch moment. Who knows what battles lie ahead? And the person who begins to compromise is lost. He's dead in the water. Those of us who don't will have problems and battles. Well, before we take that song, there's another song I want to refer to. As many of you know, my, my, my good wife Margaret sings in the Celebration Choir. We've got other members of Celebration Choir in our congregation here today. Now, there are real hazards being a, a husband or wife of a member of the Celebration Choir. Because, of course, they have to learn other words off by heart. And you have to put up with uh, your good wife singing you all these words to you all night through, through the night and, uh, so that she's got the words right. So I, I could sing most of the Celebration Choir songs for you. I will not prove it, but I could. Uh, and uh, there's one which goes with a syncopated rhythm. Now, when she was learning that, it wasn't just the words and the tune of her brother. Because it was syncopation, the whole bed rocked while Margaret was learning the words. I dare to be different. Sleeping habits were greatly disturbed. And the song went, I dare to be different. I really can't remember all the words. I dare to belong. Well, that's fine. I dare to be different. But the punchline and I haven't got the words in front of me, but there's a punchline which says, I dare to be like Christ. Now, this seems to me what it's all about. 
For never was there a man who stood more firmly for truth. Please don't ever be hooked by the lie that Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. So, you know, he didn't sort of take a strong lie. He was compromising. You want to read what Jesus said about the ills of his day. He was different. People knew that. But he was graciously, unlovingly different. He might hate the sin, but he would love the sinner. He might speak words against dead religion, but he would stand alongside them and witness to them. Dare to be different. Dare to be like Christ. May that be our prayer. Before we sing, I'm going to pray.